Father, we are grateful for the gospel, for its transforming power. Help us not to ever be ashamed of your gospel. Father, thank you for the great privilege we have of gathering together to remind ourselves that we're part of a greater body, that, that we belong to your church and that you're at work among us. Now, as we take our Bibles, would you, through your Holy Spirit, use it to change us and transform us and conform us to the image of Christ, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I imagine you know the name Irma Bombeck. Uh, She is a newspaper columnist that gives advice, and she was responding in an article to a letter that someone had written her answering the question, what does a dad do? She writes that she had received a letter from a single mother who had raised a son who was about himself now to become a dad. And since he had no recollection of his own father, her question, Irma says to me, was, what do I tell him a father does? Irma goes on to write that when she was only nine years old, her father died, and that she too was raised by her mother, giving rise to the same question, what do fathers do? Irma says, as far as I could observe... They brought around the car when it rained so that everybody else could stay dry. They always always took the family pictures, which is why they were never in them. And they carved turkeys on Thanksgiving, kept the car gassed up, weren't afraid to go into the basement, mowed the lawn, and tightened the clothesline to keep it from sagging. Who has a clothesline out there? Anybody? It's a bit of a dated article. There's a few of you old fogies out there. Yeah, we have one. And... uh, fixes the clothesline to keep it from sagging. She goes on to say, it wasn't until my husband and I had children that I was able to observe firsthand what a father contributed to a child's life. What did he do? He threw them higher than his head until they were weak from laughter. He cast the deciding vote on the puppy debate. He listened more than he talked. He let them make mistakes. He allowed them to fall from their first two-wheeler without having a heart attack. He read a newspaper while they were trying to parallel park a car for the first time in preparation for their driving test. I don't know that, Dad. If I had to tell someone's son what a father really does that is important, it would be that he shows up for the job in good times and bad times. He's a man who is constantly being observed by his children. They learn from him how to handle adversity, anger, disappointment, and success. He won't laugh at their dreams, no matter how impossible they might seem. He will dig out at 1 a.m. when one of his children runs out of gas. He will make unpopular decisions and stick by them. When he is wrong and makes a mistake, he will admit it. He sets the tone for how family members treat one another. Members of the opposite sex, how you treat members of the opposite sex, and even people who are different than they are, By example, he can instill a desire to give something back to the community when its needs are greater than his own. But mostly, a good father involves himself in his kids' lives. The more responsibility he has for a child, the harder it is to walk for them to walk out of his life. A father has the potential to be a powerful force in the life of a child. Irma says, grab it. So how can a father have a powerful influence and be a powerful force 
in the lives of their children. It occurs to me today, as I invite you to grab your notes and open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 20, as we begin a new series on prayer, that it is appropriate to challenge our fathers, even as we set the stage for this summer series on prayer, that we challenge our fathers today from 2 Chronicles chapter 20 to be men who pray for their children, and if you have grandchildren, praying for your grandchildren. I don't know what you think a father's main tasks should be. Um, Many of you have uh, your own father comes to your mind, and my father taught me so many things. But what could be more important, we said a little while ago, What could be more important than pointing boys and girls to Christ? It seems that a close second has to be what could be more important than a father praying for his children. Well, if you have your Bibles open to 2 Chronicles, we'll read in just a moment. If you have your notes nearby, I want you to look down because I want to take just a minute and I want to talk about what we want to accomplish with our message today. First of all, as I've referenced, we're beginning a new summer series on the topic of prayer. And that's what we're calling it, just prayer. I'm going to be just poking around. I don't, have, uh, I don't have it planned out. I'm just going to go week to week and explore from God's Word the things that are on my heart about prayer. I think it's okay for me to admit that part of my motive in this sermon series on prayer is the fact that I struggle with prayerlessness myself, and I'm the pastor. Maybe like me, you get texts and emails every day where people say, please pray for me. And I'm their pastor. Pastor, pray for me. My boy just rolled his four-wheeler. Pastor, pray for me. My brother-in-law is having surgery. It looks like it's going to be bad. Pastor, pray for me. Pastor, pray for me. Pastor, pray for my children. And I try to stop. I imagine you do the same thing and you try to breathe up a prayer and, and you say, Lord, would you please enter into this situation? Father, would you please just cover it with your hand? Would you answer? And then we're off about our work and I would think that as a pastor I should be praying even more regularly than I am. Well, we pray as a staff as we begin our mornings here every morning at Fellowship Bible Church. There are a couple of other times when we gather the pastors and we pray together, pastor and director of children's ministries, and we have specific prayer times and we pray through the yellow cards that you turn in with prayer requests. But I suspect that if you followed me around with an expectation of learning, what does a pastor do all week, that part of your expectation would be that the pastor is praying for the people and And I have to say, I might be embarrassed if you followed me around. And so one of the things that I want to happen in my life this summer is that the Word of God would challenge me in my thinking and in my heart attitude that I would lock on and become a greater uh, pastor who prays. But I want that for our whole church. And so uh, this summer, number one, we want to lay a foundation for a renewed focus on prayer, both as individuals and as a church. Not only do I want to be a pastor who's praying, but I want to shepherd a flock of people who are praying, and I want to challenge you this summer with this matter of prayer. And isn't prayer a strange thing? Think about it. I mean, you're talking sometimes in, your, in, the, in the silence of your own mind and thought life or in, out of your heart, we would say, maybe not verbally or maybe verbally, and you're talking, and you're talking to somebody that you can't see, and And you've never seen him, and he's never talked back verbally or audibly to you. And yet, you're praying, you're talking. One of the things that I do for prayer that I've been trying in the warmer weather to pray more consistently 
is when I, I walk in the evening, and if my wife's not with me so that I talk with her, which is a good thing, um, if I'm by myself, I go down to T.A. Lowry, and there's a nice little walking path there, and I often slip down right before dark, and I can get a few laps in of walking and a little bit of jogging. But I pray almost the whole time I'm there, and I pray out loud. Now, wouldn't that be strange if someone were hiding in the briars? There's this grown man walking along, praying out loud, Lord, my boy needs you tonight. Lord, would you watch over my son? Lord, my grandchildren, and name my grandchildren. Father, for my church. Father, for the things that happened today. Father, for this family, for this marriage, for this hospital bed. Lord, and you're praying out loud. And it's, there's no one here, sir. Now, you don't understand. I'm talking to the sovereign king of the universe. I can talk and my heavenly father hears me. Do you really believe that? And so I recognize that prayer is a strange thing. And so we're going to poke around our Bibles and we're going to explore this topic of prayer because I believe that God's people pray, right? God's people pray. And so let's pray. And uh, this Sunday we want to do two things. We want to encourage you to become a praying church. And so I want this sermon to be somewhat of a platform for our summer series to sort of stir our thinking and hopefully stir our hearts that we would be desiring to come Sunday morning in full attention with our Bibles open and our pens and our papers ready to have God speak to us through His Spirit and through His Word that we would become a praying church. I am going to be away the next two Sundays in ministry out in the Midwest Um, And Jim Shupey will be here, and next Sunday, he's going to deal somewhat with the topic of the priority of prayer. Why is it so important that we pray? And he's going to deal with that. The next Sunday, though, he's going to deal with a very interesting subject on the 30th of June. He's going to deal with this matter of the problems with prayer and, and address even unanswered prayer. I pray, and God doesn't seem to pay attention to me. What about that? And so I know you will benefit from Pastor... Jim Shupey's teaching, Dr. Shupey's teaching, in my absence, I'll be back, Lord willing, the first Sunday in July, and and we will focus on praying for our nation on that 4th of July weekend um, as we celebrate our nation's birthday. But what about today? So this summer, we want to accomplish that. We want to become a praying church. We want to study God's Word together. What about today? Today's Father's Day, and I think it's appropriate to challenge our fathers, as I've already referenced, that we become intentional and faithful in praying for our families. I mean, it's tough to be a father. It's tough to be uh, always on duty and to know exactly what to do in our home and our families. But one thing we know we can do, we can pray. Let's be intentional. Let's be faithful. I wonder, fathers, are you praying for your children? Are you praying for your grandchildren? Faithfully praying. Well, I want us then, in in light of Father's Day, um, it brought to my mind this wonderful passage of Scripture that is somewhat familiar because we've used it through the years in different ways here because there are multiple kinds of lessons that can be learned in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. This is the story of King Jehoshaphat, and he is quite a guy. We're going to jump right into this story and not take very long to set the stage or the context, but fathers, I'm using Jehoshaphat as uh, an example of what Uh, we might relate to as fathers. He's the king. He's the one who's in charge. He's the one who's supposed to have the answers. I mean, he's got the queen elbowing him and say, what are you going to do now? And you're the dad. You're the father. Fathers have to know what to do. And your wife gives you the elbow and you better do something about this. 
Well, what do I do? I don't know what to do. And I want you to see a strength in Jehoshaphat and a strength that comes out of his weakness. It is quite a story. Who is Jehoshaphat? Well, let's just remind ourselves that the very first king that God allowed Israel to have was King Saul. Remember, head and shoulders taller than everyone else. Following King Saul was David who killed Goliath. And then David's son Solomon took the throne. David served for 40 years. Solomon served for 40 years. Those were the glory years in all of Israel. But Solomon, remember, was not like his father. He didn't have a heart after God. He started out strong. He fell fast. And he fell long and deep into sin. He's the one that had all the wives and concubines and the great wealth. And though he had all the wisdom, uh, more wisdom God gave him than any man that ever lived, he was foolish. And he allowed the idolatry of his wives to take over his life, and he, and he went far from God. And so God said to Solomon, that's enough. I'm going to take the kingdom away from you. And so that began a time of division in Israel, and uh, there was civil war. So Saul, David, Solomon, because God was honoring David, he told Solomon, I will let you live out your days and die before the kingdom crumbles and we divide it. But then what happened was the 12 tribes that made up Israel, 10 of them to the north became what we call Israel. So in our Old Testament history, and Second Chronicles is a historical book, it is a record of the history of Israel. So this really happened. All of this detail happened exactly the way it was written. And Israel is the tribes to the north. Now you need to know that after the division, after Solomon's kingdom crumbled, that there were no righteous kings in Israel. Ten tribes make up Israel. So in the historical books, when you think of Israel and you hear of Israel, it's the ten tribes to the northern part of Israel. There were no good kings. And finally, ultimately, God used Nebuchadnezzar and other kings to come like a boiling pot out of the north, to spill over on them and to take them into captivity. In the south, there were two tribes. We call that Judah. So there was Israel and Judah, a nation divided. Israel had kings. There were no righteous kings. Judah had kings. There were some righteous kings. And Jehoshaphat was one of those kings that was good most of the time. So that's the perspective. He's one of the kings in Judah. Jerusalem was in Judah, the southern kingdom. And that's where we find Jehoshaphat gathered with his people right in front of the temple, Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. Let's read the story a little bit. If you have your pen ready and your notes ready, um, we want to lay down this story and we want to draw from it two things, remember. We want it to be a platform to motivate us to want to learn more about prayer this summer. And we want Jehoshaphat to be a great model to our fathers and that we would learn how to pray from Jehoshaphat. Let's begin 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites and with them some of the Meunites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. And you know what? We better stop right there. And let's just figure out who are these people. The Moabites and the Ammonites and the Meunites. Um... They are, in general terms speaking, the enemies of Israel. 
It is an interesting story. We don't have time to go there, but if you want to write in your notes and take a few minutes to look up this old story, it's R-rated. That might motivate you to read it. Um, It's Genesis chapter 19. It begins somewhere around verse 37. You'll recall the occurrence. It was when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you recall? Because of their great sin. And there was one righteous man that lived there with his family. He really had no business living there. But he did with his wife and his daughters. His name was Lot. He was a nephew to Abraham. A familiar character in our Old Testament. And God told Lot, you better get out of Sodom. And he ran and he said, don't even look back. Well, you know, it began to thunder and lightning and hail and and fire fell out of the sky. And I, I picture the ground bubbling up with lava. And it was a horrific mess as God destroyed with fire and brimstone these wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for their great sin. And here's Lot and his wife and they're running away from this destruction. And he has his two young adult daughters with him. But what happened to his wife? His wife, oh, she... She couldn't help it. She wanted to turn and look back. I take it she hated to leave Sodom. Sodom. And, it was, and she disobeyed God. And when she turned around and looked back, he turned her into a pillar of salt. I mean, imagine that. And, and, and what did it take from Lot to not turn around and look at his wife? I mean, he's running and he's fleeing for their lives. And she looks back and God strikes her dead by turning her into a pillar of salt. It's an incredible story. And they flee to the mountains, Lot and his two adult daughters, young adult daughters. And his daughters realize there's no community. There's no one there for them to marry. And so they cook up an idea. And the oldest daughter tells the younger daughter, let's get our father drunk. And so they create wine and they get their father drunk and they lie down with him. She does. The oldest one does. She lies down with her father one evening. The Bible tells us that he was so drunken lot was that he did not know when she came and he he did not know when she left but she got her father to impregnate her the next day they made some more wine and they got their father drunk again and the younger daughter got uh, her father lot to impregnate her and she came in and left and he didn't even know she was there and they both became pregnant with children it was no fault of the boys but they each had boys and the oldest had a son Ammon and he's the father of the Ammonites and they've been the enemies of Israel ever since. And the younger had a son whose name was Ben-Ami. The Ammonites, the father of the Ammonites, come from the younger sister's son. Then who are the Meunites? The Meunites are the sons of, most Bible teachers believe they are the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. All of these still to this day are the enemies of Israel. And in this day, they were the enemies of Israel to the degree that Jehoshaphat receives a report and he thinks he's going to get wiped off the face of the earth. But let's go back to reading the text. Let's begin it again. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites and with them some of the Meunites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. And some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazan Tamar, which is in Gedi. And then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set his face to seek the Lord. And he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Let's stop there and go to our notes. By the way, I've returned to my ESV this morning. And uh, the first thing we see, though, in our text is that Jehoshaphat is a man with a problem. Let's learn some lessons and let's see how he responds 
Let's lay a foundation on some insights of prayer. First of all, he's a man with a problem, isn't he? He gets this report. He's surrounded by the enemies. The Moabites and the Ammonites are after him. And it is a great multitude that is coming against him from Edom. They, have, they are using the geography of the land strategically to approach him in such a way. And they are such a vast army, he knows that he has no answer for this problem It's a good reminder to us, though, isn't it, as we realize that problems are often the catalyst for much of our prayers. You stop and think about it. Until he had his problem, he might not have been thinking about praying, and once you have a problem, you now have a motivation to pray. Problems become the catalyst for our prayers. Now, Now, prayers are a lot, prayer is a lot more than just dealing with problems, but let's be honest. How, what percentage of our prayer life is based upon our problem life? Father, please. You can, Father, I don't know what to do here. I don't know what to do there. Father, my son is far away. Father, my son has rolled the foiler. Father, Father, what are we going to do? So we're praying based on problems, right? We're based on problems. And so problems become the catalyst for much of our prayers. The second thing I want you to see is that we have a man here in Jehoshaphat, who's in a panic, his problems are so overwhelming, he absolutely does not know what to do. And so it says in verse 3, then Jehoshaphat was afraid. Now, this is a rough moment for the king, you know? This is tough on dads. Kids think their dads are never afraid. They think, they think their dads always know what to do. This is where the queen is elbowing the king. Hey, buddy, solve the problem. What are we going to do? I don't know what I'm going to do. And he's actually afraid. This reminds us of something that is a very important element as we lay a foundation to our prayer series, and it is this. See, the positive aspect about his fear is that the fear strips away all self-confidence. Fear strips away all of his self-confidence. What you need to understand is that self-reliant people are people who don't pray. Self-reliant. Hey, when you think you've got it together, when you think you're the toughest guy on the block, when you think you have all the resources, when you know everything and you're the wisest, smartest guy in the room, you don't pray because you've got it together. And here's Jehoshaphat held up before us as a great example of a guy who's in a situation where the problems are greater than his resources to the degree that he admits that he's afraid, he knows he has no idea what to do, and he's in charge. That's dad, isn't it? And I don't know what to do. And so what a good example. When you recognize, like the Apostle Paul, where he says ultimately that when I am weak, what did he say? Then strong. And so we begin to see a strength that comes out of Jehoshaphat that's built on his weakness because he doesn't know what to do and because he doesn't have the resources and he doesn't have self-confidence to say, this is what we're going to do. And so he becomes a model to us as a man driven to pray. Number three, he's a man who's driven to pray. So let's go back to the text, verse three again and verse four again, and we'll read on. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. So notice, here's where he He set his face to seek the Lord. And then he proclaimed a fast. That raises another topic, fasting. How is that related to prayer? Somewhere this summer when we're poking around our Bibles, we'll have to run into that, won't we? And what is fasting and how does that relate to prayer? And furthermore, are you telling me 
that the sovereign God of the universe, and this guy's walking, mumbling out loud, walking down at the elementary school, and somehow God, who's sovereign over everything, is going to move his hand over because of this guy praying, or because somebody denies themselves milkshakes from Chick-fil-A and fast, that somehow God might answer the prayer more. What's that all about? I don't know. You have to come and show up. But it's involving prayer. At the least, what we have in Jehoshaphat's fasting is an indicator of his sincerity, of his humility, of his focus. And so he, not only does he turn his face to the Lord, not only does he fast, but he proclaims as the king, everybody's going to fast. Kids, how would you like your dad to do that? I don't know what to do today, so I'm calling a fast. We're all going to pray and fast. All right, Dad. You know, I suspect that there's families that that's what we need to do. I remember as a younger pastor 20-some years ago, arriving on the site of a home that as I look back over 35 years of ministry is as broken of a home as I've ever experienced. And I was called there that day and all the children were adults and married and they were all there and families were crumbling and the father and mother were there. And when I walked into the house, they had called me because they were in crisis. And when I walked into the house, my ears were met with the wailing of the fathers he laid. And I looked through the hallway at the doorway and there lying catty corner across the bed in the middle of the day was the father wailing in despair. And I tried to figure out what was going on and I realized there was a lot of tears and there was problems and it was... So you think you have a problem. You know what to do, don't you? You call PV. Call PV. He'll know what to do. I don't know what to do. I walk in this house. What am I? I don't know what to do. So I went and got the father off the bed and I brought him to the living room and I told the men, I said, you kneel there and you kneel there and you kneel there and you kneel there gathered the women, and I kneeled down, and I said, I don't know what to do. Let's pray. So I suspect there's dads here like that, and Jehoshaphat, he doesn't know what to do, so he calls his whole nation together, and he says, we're going to fast, and we're going to pray, and we're going to seek God's face. I say that's pretty good leadership. And so there he is, a man driven to pray, and what we see in that, let's read on just a little bit and come back to the notes And so Judah, verse 4, assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. That involves prayer. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord. This is at the court of Solomon's temple, newly decorated. And he said, here's his prayer. Here's his prayer, verse 6. You can mark it in your Bible. It begins in verse 6. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying... Now, verse 9, we're not going to take time to look there. 
But it goes back to chapter 6 of Second Chronicles, and it's a direct quote from Solomon's prayer before the temple where God says, and Solomon prays, that whenever you have, let's read it, it's a direct quote, if, if, almost a direct quote, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and you will save When Solomon was dedicating the temple, that's what he said. Anytime we have these pestilences and these afflictions, we will come here and we will face this house because this is where your name is. This is where we meet you. This is where we pray. This is where we worship. So we have a model. Let's stop and go back to the notes. We have a model in Jehoshaphat is of man driven to pray. First thing I want you to recognize about him as he prays is that he is humble. He is humble. He admits that he doesn't have the answers. He knows that he can't solve the problems. He doesn't know what to do, so he calls everybody together for a fast. And in so doing, what is he doing? He recognizes his complete inadequacy. I have no resources to solve this. I am complete. What are you going to do? I don't know. I am inadequate. I am inadequate. Let's turn to Luke chapter 18 and let's remind ourselves the important principle of prayer here. And it is that God hears the prayer of the humble. So Jehoshaphat, in his humility, doesn't know what to do, lacks the resources to face this army, calls for a fast and a prayer meeting in front of the temple. Luke chapter 18 is the teaching of our Lord Jesus. And we look at verse 9 to begin with. Let me just read it. It's easier to read it than to tell it. He is Jesus, verse 9 of chapter 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Okay, just stop a minute. They what? They trusted in themselves. People who trust in themselves don't pray. Well, they pray, but you're going to hear how they pray here in just a minute. Jesus tells this parable about some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Here's the story, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this dirtbag tax collector right here, and I can think he pointed at that point. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. In contrast, Jesus goes on with his story in verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. And he beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. There's a prayer. There's a prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so don't we have in the circumstances of the surrounding of the Ammonites and the Meunites, we have in this situation, exactly what Jehoshaphat needed. He needed to be humbled because he had nowhere else to go but seek the face of God. 
So he's humble. He recognizes his complete inadequacy. Let's continue to review the passage at the end of verse 4. He wants to seek help from the Lord, and he begins this prayer, and he's talking to the Lord. And the first thing we want to realize about prayer is that you will never pray if you do not believe in a God who hears. So we see in Jehoshaphat a man who's praying to a God who hears. He believes that when he prays, God hears. Now you can hide in the briars down by T.A. Lowry, and I'm walking around talking out loud, Maybe you think I need a trip to the funny farm, but I'm telling you, the God of the universe hears what I'm saying. How can that be? The Bible says so. I have no explanation for it whatsoever. And so Jehoshaphat believes in a God who hears. So if you're an an agnostic today or an atheist today, you probably don't even believe that there's a God who hears it's very likely that you're not a person of prayer. And what I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, like sitting cross-legged, eating bird seed, smoking whatever, humming and meditating to yourself and saying, these are my prayers. I'm talking about talking directly by invitation to the God of the universe at whose right hand sits the King of kings and the Lord of lords, our Lord Jesus, who is our high priest, interceding on behalf. And we're praying and he hears Do you really believe that God hears? Not only does he hear, but we see in Jehoshaphat, a man who models for us, a man who believes in a God who helps, verse 4, to seek help from the Lord. Why are we praying? Because we need help. And so not only is is it a God who hears, but it's a God who helps me when I pray. And finally, uh, Letter D, he has faith in the power of God. Let's enter his prayer and he says, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God of in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. That's a powerful God. In your hand, there it is, our power and might. You are omnipotent. So not only do you hear me, not only will you help me, but you have unlimited resources and capacities to respond according to your will on earth as it is in heaven. That's a great God. Jehoshaphat's right where he needs to be. And he has faith in the power of God. Letter E, he has hope then in the name of God. And so he prays and he reminds God that he drove these inhabitants out of the land. He wouldn't let the Israelites wipe them out when they came out of Egypt. And then he reminds God, that's a manner of speaking. God doesn't forget. You know that, right? So he reminds God of something God already knows. Verse 9, and you said, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house. He says in verse 8, and they have lived in it and built it for you. In it is a sanctuary for your name. So not only is he a God who hears, a God who helps, who he has faith in his power, but he has hope in the name of God. Proverbs 18, verse 10 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run to it and are safe. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run to it and are safe. I'd say Jehoshaphat's heading the right direction here, isn't he? The queen's beating the fire out of his rib cage. What are you going to do? I'm doing it. I'm praying. 
I'm, I'm taking hope in a God who helps. I'm running to the righteous tower of his name. I want you to see now after he prays, and we must skim through here, but you'll get the point. He continues to pray. I would encourage you to mark this passage. Stick your notes in there, and I think it would be very valuable for you to review this on your own time this week. It's not difficult to understand. He talks about God. They, they reward us. We, we didn't wipe them off the face of the earth because you told us not to. And then now they reward us by trying to wipe us out. Oh God, verse 12. Let your eyes go to verse 12. Oh God, oh our God, will you not execute judgment on them? That's another question about prayer that we'll deal with this summer is, uh, is it okay for me to pray for God to wipe out my enemies? That's in the Bible a lot more than you think. For we are powerless. We are powerless against this great horde. There's that inadequacy again. He verbalizes his own inadequacy. I am powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do. Look at, but our eyes are on you. So he's done praying. And so now is what he's doing. He's waiting. He's waiting. Not only is he waiting, but verse 13 says, Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. They're just standing before the Lord. And so the fourth thing we realize is that Jehoshaphat models for us a man that when he prays, he is then patient. He is a man who is patient. He has prayed, and now it's time to wait. God, why don't you answer my prayers yesterday? We are not patient people, and we're going to find out that God doesn't always answer prayer the way we would like, at the pace with which we would like. He is a man confident in God's promises, though. The next section is very interesting. It starts with verse 13. All Judah is standing there, the men, the women, the babies, the little children. And then, verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel. There's another lesson that we didn't point out in this one, but in these notes... But there is a role of the Holy Spirit in prayer. What is that? Here we see the Spirit of God is present. He communicates to this prophet Jehaziel, who's the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, and so forth. And he said, verse 15, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you. And so we think, we wish we had somebody who could come to us and say, thus says the Lord to you, but we do. Our book says it over and over. Thus saith the Lord. Here it is. God has spoken. Here's the promises of God. And that's exactly what was going on with Jehoshaphat and and Jehaziel. He says, listen to me, thus saith the Lord. And so we see a man confident in the promises of God because Jehaziel goes on to say, thus says the Lord, verse 15, do not be afraid. And our Bible says that over and over, doesn't it? Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde. Oh yeah, right, right, sure. Okay. You're about to be wiped off the face of the earth. Just don't be afraid and don't even be dismayed. Get yourself some sweet tea, sit in the shade and wait on God. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? It's counterintuitive. What I'm going to do is I'm going to sharpen my sword and I'm going to line them up there and then when I drop one, I'm going to pick up the X and I'm going to go down fighting. No. No. Don't do a thing. Just wait. Just rest. 
Do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but it's God's. Doesn't James remind us that the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God? We mess up what God's trying to do sometimes because we have to get our hands involved to try to solve this problem that is unsolvable. You cannot soften another person's heart. You cannot open another person's eyes to the gospel. You cannot make that man change no matter how long you've been married to him. You cannot make your daughter stop liking that boy. You cannot fix a person who's broken in the ICU and intubated. You don't have that ability. So stop. Stop. And do not be dismayed, he says. You, you don't have to worry about this horde. For the battle is not yours, but it is the Lord's. And then he says, tomorrow go down against them and so forth. He sets up a scene. But verse 17, he says, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. And Jehoshaphat believes every word of the prophet. Not only that, he's a man committed to praise, and you have to look that up too. You can see he falls down in verse 18 before the Lord worshiping. He lines up in verse 18 the Korahites, and they stood up to praise the Lord. He organizes a praise time, and praise has a lot to do with our prayer life as well. How does worship and praise enter into our prayer life? But what I want you to see is that, that in the passage, when you look at it, the Ammonites and the Moabites the Meunites, they're already still there. They haven't been defeated yet. And Jehoshaphat calls for them to begin to praise the Lord before the answer has come. No, the answer came. It was given through a word of the Lord. And so it was done. And then we don't know how it looked exactly. It would have been a a sight to behold, I'm sure. Maybe along the line of some of you Civil War buffs can relate to that dark evening in the woods when Stonewall and his staff were riding in the darkness and one of his men in the woods ahead of him, the men on the ground, thought it was the enemy coming on horseback and they said, the enemy! And they all whipped up their guns and they shoot and they shoot their own beloved general in a panic in the darkness. We don't know exactly what it looked like, but the the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Meunites were all laid out. They were going to use the geography of the ground, were given enough information to know that they could come in Exactly just right there. It was a great place for them to attack. And somebody must have shouted, there they come! And somebody started wailing their sword. And and the next thing you know, a panic swept through. and, And their minds under the influence of the Holy Spirit and their eyes were deceived. Somehow they had fear overwhelm them and they went berserk and they they slaughtered one another until they were all dead. And it says that the men of Israel spent days And they still couldn't even collect all the loot from among the dead bodies. And Jehoshaphat hits the queen back in the ribs and says, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. Nah, I don't think he did. He's a humble man. But he was confident in the promises of God. Listen, our prayer life... Our prayer life, and fathers, as you pray for your children, your prayer life has everything to do with your confidence in the promises of God. 
And then he was a man committed to praise. Well, let's wrap this up with just a few simple applications, and we'll take time in later weeks to apply the Word of God to our lives. But I certainly want us to realize as we enter this prayer series that people who pray are people who recognize their limitations. You ready to recognize your limitations? You ready to realize that a microorganism in your bloodstream, you have no power or authority over that? Do you recognize that your seven-year-old child's heart, you really have very little ability to transform it? Do you realize you can't do a stinking thing about the political mess in our country? You realize you're not in control. You can't change anybody. You are a very limited person. I am a very limited person. I am inadequate. I do not have these resources. And so prayer derives itself almost first and foremost, almost always out of a problematic platform. It it involves a whole lot more than that, but I'm telling you that's where we are. And when we recognize our limitations, that's when we begin to pray. People who pray are also people who hold fast to the promises of God. I've emphasized that already. Our prayer life will have a lot to do with our handle on the promises of God. Number three, people who pray find great confidence in what God has done in the past. I'll be driving a good bit in the next 10 days, and I assure you, I will be thinking about Jehoshaphat. I love this story. You know I preach a sermon about every eight months on something. But does it encourage you what happened in Jehoshaphat? Hey, 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 hey. The, the last blank isn't filled in yet. I hear the papers. Doesn't it encourage you to know what Jehoshaphat did and didn't do? And that the great king in Judah didn't have a clue what to do? And he had no resources? And God answered prayer, and I find it very encouraging. And then when I read church history and I read about the great preachers and the great missionaries and God's people and how God answered prayer through the centuries. And then when I hear and remember in my mind the stories of my father and how God answered prayer through the years, it brings great encouragement to me to reflect upon what God has done in the past. He really did this. And he, and he is an effective prayer answering God today. So here you go. Now you can do it. So pray. Let's stand and pray. Well, Father, we need your help. We are often so self-sufficient that we become prayerless. We imagine ourselves to have a strength that we do not have. We pretend that we have resources that we do not have. We are so self-reliant, and so please forgive us. Forgive us for what really amounts to a sin, the sin of self-reliance, the sin of false belief. Would you show us who we are in your presence? Like the tax collector. Just can't even get our head up before you. Apart from the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have no hope. 
And thank you that he's our high priest seated in the heavenlies and we're invited into your presence and you hear us right now. Would you begin to do a work in my life and a work in the lives of our church, each one of us, and especially the fathers today, that we would be faithful and intentional about praying for our families. Forgive us for our prayerlessness. Renew us with a renewed vigor and enthusiasm to trust the promises of your word, to be a people who pray. In Jesus' name we ask this, asking for your blessing for another week if you tarry. Amen.